Attention, there's only a month left until summer. And my friends at Manscaped are here to make sure your little Gotham is prim and proper for the season with the Performance Package 4.0. Join the 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped and get ready for summer by going to manscaped.com and get 20% off plus free shipping with the code BATBOOK. Now riddle me this, what is in the Performance Package 4.0? Answer, the tools to keep you comfy for a night out in Gotham. The Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer maintains the front yard with a cutting edge blade that helps reduce accidents while maintaining the front yard. And you know the saying, the shorter the grass, the taller the tree. If you have some extra weeds in your ears and nostrils, the Weed Whacker is a handy device to trim the ones not even Pamela Isley would pluck. And if your downstairs desert is too dry for the head of the demon, refresh with the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant. It'll bring your Lazarus pit back to life. So stock your utility belt with the right grooming gadgets at manscaped.com and get 20% off plus free shipping with the code BATBOOK. That's B-A-T-B-O-O-K, BATBOOK. Welcome to the Batman Book Club, a podcast exploring the Dark Knight Library. I'm your host, Ryan Lauer. The Batman Book Club is a proud member of the Batman Podcast Network, hosted by Batman on Film. Just go to batmanonfilm.com, click on podcasts, you'll find the Batman Podcast Network that has a whole list of other Bat-related shows that also dive into other nerdy subjects we all love to frolic about in our free time. And the Batman Book Club is also on Patreon, so if you like what's going on with the show and you want to help support it and keep the generators running and the Wayne Manor study, just go to patreon.com slash thebatmanbc. Now, thank you for listening to episode 105, The Batcave Companion. Now, this is uh, this is one of two episodes covering this book. So um, beware later this week, in a couple days, you'll also see in your feed an episode 106, The Batcave Companion. But it's not the same episode duplicated. It's because I have two authors, one on each episode, to talk about this book. So the the headliner is who I'm starting this off with. He's uh, the main man of the Batcave Companion. It's Mr. Mr. Michael Yuri. Michael, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me here, Ryan. I'm, I'm happy to be here today. Yes, um, it was. Uh, I was really appreciative. It was a few months ago when um, I I, tr- I tracked you and other Michael down, and I uh, sent you an email and said I had this idea if you maybe want to come talk about the Batcave Companion because it's a really good book, very informative. And so I appreciate you sticking with me, going back and forth to where we were able to find a time that worked for both of us and uh, get to talk about your section of of the book. Sure, you know, I, it's been a while since I, I looked at the book. I'm actually very uh, thankful that you're interested uh, in it. Uh, it. It's got a couple of years on it now, but to me, that's that's uh, a testament to the the hard work that Michael Cronenberg and I put into it. The fact that uh, it, it's it's uh, it was published in 2009, 
and here mm -hmm. we are. I should be, uh, yeah. And so we're we're talking about it all these years later, and and I'm just really happy that uh, it's had legs uh, to to stand and and has been uh, you know critically acclaimed as uh, uh, a really appreciated Batman volume. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a great book. And before we dive into it, I'd like to if you could just tell some of the the people listening just like a quick summary if they're not unaware of of your work and what you've what you've done, if you can fill them in. Well, sure. Um, I am the editor of Tomorrow's Back Issue magazine. Uh, that magazine has been in print since 2003. So now that I'm planning next year's 2023's issues, we're looking at our 20th anniversary. <laughs> and that's just mind blowing for me. Uh, I, I've been in the comics industry as an editor and as a writer off and on for over 30 years now. Uh, I started Oh, in 1986, writing for Amazing Heroes, uh, uh, oh. long gone, uh, but beloved uh, magazine from Fantagraphics. It was a comics uh, news and history source. Then I went to Comico, which most people would call Comico, but it's actually pronounced Comico, oddly enough, uh, oh. the comic company. Uh, yeah, and that uh, was uh, from 1988 to 1989. I was an editor there under Diana Schutz who taught me how to edit and a uh, fabulous woman, a uh, very, very talented person. Then I went to DC Comics uh, 1989 through 1992 as an editor, edited a handful of things there. Uh, probably most famously or infamously uh, would be the loose leaf version of Who's Who. And <laughs> then I was at Dark Horse uh, Comics as an editor and writer through the mid nineties. And then in the late nineties, was doing stuff like writing cartoon comics and such and kind of uh, like Looney Tunes, Pinky and the Brain, uh, Adventures of the Mask, Nort, uh, and Green Lantern uh, Core Quarterly. And then kind of walked it out of comics, but uh, got lured back in by Tomorrow's, uh, first through the publication of a book uh, about Captain Action. Mm -hmm. who was uh, the yeah, original superhero action figure. And then one by one, I've just done a number of books as well as back issue and also retro fan magazine for uh, tomorrow. So uh, today, yeah, here I am. I, I, I get to keep my head buried blissfully in the sands of nostalgia. <laughs> and I just, uh, yeah, I, I get to dig up facts about the stuff that I grew up with, that you grew up with. And, well, wow, what a really cool job. You know, it's just yeah. it's a blessing and uh, privilege to be able to do this stuff. And I, when I got into comics all those years ago, I never thought that I would end up as an historian, but this was a good fit for me. I, mm -hmm. I really just love uh, the, the books of the 60s and 70s in particular. The 60s, that would be my childhood, and the 70s would be my teenage years. So those are the books that uh, I read and reread and reread and continue <laughs> yeah. to reread today, uh, you know, uh, but read through my formative years and they just really shaped my, my life and, and my future vocation future at that time. So here we are. <laughs> work is always work, but you've, many of us have always heard uh, do what you love and you won't work a day in your life. So I think that it kind of sounds a little bit like you found um, that that holds true. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, and the fact that, you know, for years I've been doing this from home. I mean, when uh, the lockdown with the pandemic started and a lot of people ended up at home, some people 
kind of, I don't know, uh, tasted the forbidden fruit, you know? I mean, is this something that those of us who have worked at home for a while knew and, and loved? Uh, other people, though, they can't handle it, and, and I, I respect that as well. Some people really need the structure of an office. And uh, as we also found out, some people really need the structure of a supervisor over their shoulder, <laughs> making sure that they actually are doing their work rather than yeah. eating nachos and, you know, and, and gaming and texting all day. Yeah. But uh, I'm just OCD enough uh, and uh, have enough of, uh, I guess, uh, the, 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 the solitude gene, the fortress of solitude to shift the DC characters for a minute uh, gene in me to, to, to be happy. Uh, in in the in the quiet of a home office, and I, mm-hmm. I just get crawl into this world, and you know I'm mm-hmm. here at the computer for hours, and I realize, oh, I need to get up, I need to walk yeah. around, you know, my foot's <laughs> numb, or I need to go to the bathroom, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, it's time to get up and move around. It's so easy to get sucked into this, and uh, yeah, it's so I just I I love what I do. I mean, there are times when it's a job, and it is a job, you know, kind of deadlines, somebody occasionally for whatever reason would drop the ball with the deadline and uh or or there'd just be a problem that i occasionally have to fix but you know that's 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 just life stuff happens and and uh you know when i was younger a problem would be something that would throw you into a panic today a problem is okay well instead of freaking out over it i just say how do i fix it and move on and uh, you just try to fix it, move on, and there you go. But, you know, 99.9% of the time, I utterly and absolutely adore what I do. It's So, as you said, with the pandemic, I found, so un, unbeknownst to me of Tomorrow's Publishing, it is the, I, I don't know how long, how far it's gone back, but uh, is it like the comic book chronicles of each decade and there's a 1980s book? Yeah, there, there's that series. That's done by a number of different authors under the, uh, I guess, the editorial auspices of uh, Keith Dallas. Uh, you know, so one book per decade. Mm-hmm. So uh, Tomorrow's sort of started, what, 25, 26, 26 years ago, I guess now. Okay. Uh, and it's two as in number two. Mm-hmm. And uh, that would be for John and Pamela Morrow. Uh, John is the publisher and his wife, Pam, they were graphic designers and they were doing different graphic design work and such. And then kind of on a fanish, fanish uh, lark started a fanzine about Jack Kirby, uh, the Jack Kirby collector. And this thing grew and it's still going on today. And, you know, I mean, come on, 25 years of a publication about Jack Kirby. Some people would say, you know, how can you keep, you know, mining that subject? Well, that's a pretty deep mine. You know, Jack Kirby, he really was, you know, so influential, talented and and, uh, prolific and affected so many people in so many different ways. So there's a variety of people who contribute to that magazine and it keeps going on. And so one by one, John started to add like another magazine and then publish a book. And then over this quarter century, he has amassed a colossal library of titles that he's published and in some cases written and or edited. And I'm happy to be part of that flock. Uh, it, yeah, it, it, it's just a, a good fit for me to, mm-hmm. to, as I said earlier, to be able to go behind the scenes of the, the stuff that, that I read and, and also discover some stuff from a fresh perspective and discover some titles that uh, I might have missed, although 
you want to talk about OCD. I mean, I was, uh, yeah, I, I, my, my first job in high school was working at a newsstand in my hometown of Concord, <laughs> North Carolina. And, and so, uh, I was really, I guess, technically, uh, hired to be a, a soda jerk, whatever you would call it. You know, I made <laughs> hot dogs and sandwiches and, and, uh, you know, scooped ice cream, that kind of thing, uh, behind the lunch counter. But there was this big wall of comics. So whenever I had a chance, you know, whenever there wasn't a customer at the counter, I was over there straightening up the comics. And, and uh, you know, and I mean, like, you know, uh, military regiment straight, like all of the uh, copies of each issue that was on display would be, you know, filed, you know, very straight and orderly. And then I'd start to kind of cheat a little bit and move my favorites out to the front row. So uh, the Brave and the Bold, which at this point, this would have been the uh, early to mid 1970s. So classic time with Bob Haney and Jim Apero doing yes. the book. Uh, I, that always made it to the front. Uh, I, I really got into Spider-Man at that time, too. So, you know, I, I, I wasn't just a DC guy. You know, Spider-Man and Marvel team up, they would come out front, too. But, uh, yeah, and some of the stuff I didn't necessarily care for was shunted into the back shelves. And over time, though, was back issues editor. Mm -hmm. I uh, discovered that some of that stuff was actually pretty cool. And I've learned about it. Uh, and, you know, Charlton. Uh, you know, back in the 70s, was publishing a bunch of uh, schlock and uh, uh and and uh, stuff that, but then they ended up publishing some really quality stuff that I just overlooked because they had all these hot rod magazines and knockoffs of uh, other titles. And but there were some gems there too. But what am I talking about that for? We're supposed to be talking about Batman. Let's talk about Sorry. Batman, I guess. <laughs> I no, 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 it's great, it's comics. Let's talk comics, but um, all I right, want to ask you. <laughs> it is uh, let, let's i always ask somebody when it's their first time on the show what is your favorite batman story oh wow i guess my favorite now you mean published story or personal story uh published story like comic book uh batman story okay published story uh okay published comic book story um i guess off the top of my head an actual batman story would be the joker's five way revenge that uh, Denny O'Neill Neil Adams classic that uh, rebooted the Joker in the Bronze Age and, and returned him to his homicidal roots uh, just a classic story beautifully drawn by Adams uh, who as you passed away roughly uh, just over a week ago um, about two weeks ago now so yeah. still very very fresh as passing um, so that one is probably the best Batman story that I that I read that I just remember fondly. I have a personal favorite though. It would be uh, Brave and the Bold number sixty-eight, which is the first team up of Batman and Metamorpho the Element Man. Hmm. It came out in uh, early nineteen sixty-six. I was a very small child. Absolutely fascinated with the brand new Batman TV show starring Adam West. So that that world just that show was my gateway. Yeah, and I was in the I was in the third grade, so I was the target audience. And my parents were they were laughing at the show, you know, laughing at the camp humor. And and I was much too young to do anything other than take it seriously. 
and I would get really ticked off. And my parents would try to say, you know, stop, stop laughing, stop laughing. This is not funny. And then later, you know, of course, I, I, <laughs> as I matured, I figured out the, the camp humor and, I, and then I laughed along with them. But uh, yeah, back then it was just deadly serious for me. And uh, so the Brave and the Bold issue with Metamorpho was just totally wild. Uh, it was an issue where um, you had three Batman villains team up, uh, the Joker, the Penguin, and the Riddler. So it was very much like an episode of Batman, mm -hmm. uh, the TV show. And those three villains turned Batman into Bat-Hulk. And so <laughs> if you know the cover to this, Metamorpho is sort of you know, uh, altering his shape to battle the Hulk. He's not green, but he looks like the Hulk wearing a Batman suit, you know, and it's Batman, you know, and, and then the, the villains are in the background, the Joker, and they're all cackling. And, and, uh, and you know, when you're eight in 1966, that is like the coolest thing in the world. So that is my, that's my Desert Island comic book. But the actual, my favorite Batman comic, as far as the story and the overall execution would be the, uh, the five-way revenge oh. Joker story that I mentioned earlier. I love that. What a unique poll that is for Brave and the Bold 68. I mean, uh, Joker's five-way revenge, of course, it's a classic. One of the greatest Joker stories ever, ever done. Uh, one of the greatest, I think, Batman comic covers of all time and everything. And I'm sure that'll be a lot of talk about that issue coming up um, in the second part of the Batcave Companion with Michael Cronenberg. So uh, excellent. And speaking of, let's just hop into now, talk about the Batcave Companion. story of your involvement with with the book well it's actually predated by uh two other books that i had done for tomorrow's and their uh companion series um mm -hmm. roy thomas had actually started doing uh, a series of all-star companion books for tomorrow's where he was looking at the um, the justice society's history and so he literally was going issue by issue and, you know, annotating things and going behind the scenes. And, and I was fascinated by that. So I pitched to John Morrow. And this is the point after I had been working for Tomorrow's for a couple of years. And that mm -hmm. issue was a new magazine. And I said, well, you know, I'm a former DC editor. I love DC stuff. I'd like to do three books if I can claim them. I'd like to do uh, a, a Batman companion, a Superman companion, and a Justice League companion. And John Morrow said, sure, let's start with Justice League. So I did. <laughs> and that one came out in 2005. And that um, the Justice League companion essentially um, annotated the, the Justice League books, starting with the three Brave and the Bold tryout issues, and then went from Justice League 1 through 99. And then that was all we had room for. Uh, I interviewed the remaining surviving people who uh, contributed to Justice League. And at that point, this was the early 2000s, so most of them were still alive. Uh, I even interviewed Stan Lee to ask him about the wow. urban legend. Uh, yeah, was just, did Justice League inspire uh, Fantastic Four? Because the legend is that there were golf course bragging rights between Marvel's and DC's publishers back in the early 60s when Justice League was new. And, uh, and then so um, Martin Goodman, the Marvel 
uh, publisher goes back and tells Stanley, create our own super team. And then the Fantastic Four grew out of that. So, yes, that is true, according to the late Stan, but uh, it was very much alive when I interviewed him. Uh, and then so Justice League uh, next up was Krypton Companion, where uh, I basically covered the silver and um, bronze ages of Superman and interviewed so many people from Marty Pasco to who has passed, to Lynn Wein, who has passed. Uh, you know, I, I Kurt Swan had already passed and Julia Schwartz had already passed, but I had archival interviews with them. And so then I was going to do Batman next. And um, then John approached me and said, well, Michael Cronenberg has also shown some interest in Batman and doing a companion. Uh, would you like to uh, partner with them? And I said, sure. And uh, so Michael and I started talking and um, I'm a few years older than he is. So he had this deep passion for, as you learn from your interview uh, and as your viewers will uh, learn and listeners will learn um, when they hear Michael speak about it, he had a passion for the seventies and the bronze age. And, and I did as well, but I being a little older, it was the 60s stuff that just sucked me into this world that I'm, I'm still working with today all these decades later and so uh yeah being the old guy uh <laughs> I, I i i did the 60s section My, michael cronenberg did the 70s section i was the editor and uh of the entire package and so that's kind of where this came from so he and i worked together and uh produced a book of which i'm extremely proud you've got yeah. it in your hand flipping through it there and uh, it should be on everybody's bookshelf, anybody who loves Batman. And, and I mean, obviously, I say that partially out of hype, but, you know, uh, out of uh, reality, we, we cover a lot of bases. Uh, with my section, the Silver Age section, um, when I did that back in the late 2000s, I still had the luxury of going to Carmine Infantino, who was still mm -hmm. with us at that time. And uh, I interviewed Carmine, uh, who was the artist who was, you know, with Julius Schwartz, the editor, um, charged with resuscitating Batman. Uh, the, the classic story is it's 1963 and Batman's sales are not doing very well. Mm -hmm. Batman, a detective and Julius Schwartz and Carmine Infantino, who worked together as editor and artist, primarily Carmine was drawing the flash and Adam Strange. And uh, they were called into um, the uh, publisher's office and said, you know, Batman and Detective aren't doing well. You guys gotta go save the title. So, and uh, so they went off and kind of uh, rethought how to do Batman and uh, came up with his new look, um, which essentially took Batman and, you know, Batman at the time on his insignia had the, just the bat, the black bat. So they put the yellow oval and kind of created at that point, or at least in, they didn't create, they enhanced the iconography of Batman, the bat signal, which is, you know, here on the uh, book yes. uh, cover, this beautiful Neil, Neil Adams portrait, there it is in the background. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, but essentially put it on Batman's chest. Now it sort of got, you know, elongated out um, you know, in, in more of an oval than a circle, but uh, like the actual signal that would shine in the sky. 
but uh, but you know it maybe stretched out more over Batman's uh, pecs because the guy's got a chest on him, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, so they basically sort of turned Batman back into a detective, and that was largely where the stories were going in the mid '60s. Um, prior to that, Batman had sort of become a copy of Superman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that sounds far-fetched, but essentially, you know, Superman was a father figure of sorts with Jimmy Olsen. And uh, now you, Batman actually became a father figure earlier because of Robin, but Superman ended up having the extended family with Supergirl and the Bottle City of Candor, and, you know, and Jimmy and Lois and... Um, then you had Crypto the Superdog mm-hmm. and Mr. Mix's Pitalik, uh, a cute little imp from another dimension, and Superman with like aliens, etc. So in, as I know you're aware as a Batman fan and reader that in the early 60s, what Batman had ended up doing was sort of mimicking this. Batman yeah. was fighting aliens. Batman ended up getting a Batgirl with a hyphen and Batwoman. And uh, there was a Batmite instead of Mr. Mr. Spidlick, instead of yeah. Crypto the Superdog, there was Ace the Bat-Hound. All this stuff, you know, which kind of is charming in a geeky way. This started yeah. to sort of, you know, become kind of heavy on Batman. And, and the Creature of the Night, not anymore, really, even though he mm-hmm. was out at night a lot. Um, you know, he was fighting an alien and dressing up as Zebra Batman or Rainbow Batman or whatever. And those stories, again, they're retro cool today, but they had kind of driven Batman away from what he was, uh, the, you know, detective and, and such. And so they started to bring him back with the so-called new look of 1963-64. And that's where the Batcave Companion begins uh, Is, by telling was that, that a, story. Was that a pretty easy spot for you to determine where you wanted to start then was with the new look? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was the new look. It had to be there. I mean, I could have gone back a little farther because I mean, technically the Silver Age was already existing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but that I think that would have muddied the waters because in a way, sure. the, the early Silver Age of Batman would arguably be the continuing of the uh, Golden Age of Batman, but, uh, but how Batman is sort of straight. I mean, Batman, you know, changed in the golden age. I mean, essentially, he wasn't the earliest interpretation, the guy on the rooftop, right? With the, the, the long ears and the cape and the, the flowing cloak. And then, you know, a year into it, he, he gains the sidekick of Robin. And then there's a bit of a softening that happens. And, over, and then by the time you hit the 50s, when... Um, uh, Frederick Bertman, uh, Seduction of the Innocent, and yeah. uh, uh, you know the the U.S. Senate subcommittee hearings about juvenile delinquency in comic books that starts to sanitize the medium. Then uh, DC starts to shy away from the more horrific villains. Two Face, he's a wall. You know, he goes away for the longest time. Uh, the Joker isn't seen all that often, and when he's around, he's just a clown. Um, you know, he certainly isn't killing anyone. That's the significance of the story we talked about a few minutes ago. Uh, the um, five-way revenge story of the early 70s, that brought the Joker back to his roots mm-hmm. of being a killer again. 
instead of just a guy with a buzzer in his hand, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, or pulling, pulling pranks and such. So, um, it's that way it was a clear line, uh, to, you know, a, a demarcation between that old clunky Batman stuff of the early silver age and, and the Batman that evolved into the Batman that, uh, was the Batman that Neil Adams drew, uh, in the seventies. Uh, and in the late 60s, that's when Adams you know, technically started. So that was where we started. Gotcha. Now, you already mentioned Carmine Infantino. And so you did get to interview him in a really good uh, interview that's in the book. Uh, what was, can you tell us about how you got that set up with your, your conversation and how that, how that went with him? Well, I, I called him up and said, uh, can I schedule an interview with you? I mean, All right. There you go. He was, happy, <laughs> he was happy to do that. Yeah, at that point, though, I mean, he was kind of, a, um, I mean, you know, Cormine had previously been the, um, you know, uh, editorial director and then later the uh, the publisher of DC and then was unceremoniously fired on a, a fateful day in January of 1976. He kind of literally walked into work one day, got called upstairs, and and then the, the details have never fully been disclosed, but he was packing his bags and leaving the building. Uh, uh, hmm. shortly thereafter. And um, it, from my perspective, as a young fan in the 70s, that period that uh, he was helming DC, they were coming up with some fabulous stuff. I mean, they, they just uh, were experimenting with, with genres. And that's when uh, new artists and new types of storytelling were coming in. But uh, he was the, the main uh, cover designer of uh, the late 60s, too. Uh, just a, a wonderful, uh, vital artist who had been around since the Golden Age. But uh, so he was happy to be interviewed about Batman and, um, and, and told some stories that uh, were really fascinating that are in the book. I mean, one that I will share. Uh, you know, Poison Ivy, the character, was created uh, originally, according to Carmine, uh, as a, a Batman TV villainous because um, you know Bill Dozier, William Dozier from the Batman TV show, uh, according to Carmine, said, you know, we've got to get some more Danes on this show. And uh, Danes, of course, that's what they yeah. said back in the in the yeah the mid to late sixties. Uh, with apologies to anyone who might be offended to that by that today, but um, so Poison Ivy was and Batgirl were kind of created around the same time. And Batgirl, of course, made it into the show. Poison Ivy did not. And in my mind's eye, and as I uh, conjecture here in a little sidebar um, uh, in the Batcave Companion, uh, you know, my actress picked to have played Poison Ivy if she had ever done it on a Batman TV episode would have been Anne Margaret. Anne Margaret, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, with that, with that flowing red hair, she would have been perfect mm -hmm. uh, for that, you know. Uh, so that's, I actually have a sidebar in my chapter on the Batman TV show, which there is one there that, you know, goes through the different permutations of the, the legend of the creation of the show. And I've got a sidebar on some Batman TV villains who, uh, or Batman comic villains who could have, but did not appear on the TV show and who might have been cast as those characters. So... Uh, I, I don't, think I'm doing I don't want to ruin maybe, it. Yeah. But that's, that's a word is, uh, is scarecrow. I think I might be one that I'm remembering. I'm not, I'm not looking at the book and I wrote it a long time ago. So, 
But uh, yeah, we won't we won't spoil it any further than that. But, yeah, but it, um, that's that's really funny to even consider because we always, you know, I think as uh, fans, we always play that what if game, and if so and so played or. Like you said, with Poison Ivy never made it on the show. Oh my gosh, what if she would have been on the show? Who could she? Who could have played her? And then yeah, you say Anne Margaret. It's like oh my gosh, that would have been great. So that's always uh, that's always fun stuff to visit um, and think about and discuss. And uh, Infantino, his so he he did some he did great artwork. Uh, obviously, uh, one of my favorite covers that he did at the time was Batman One Sixty Six, Two Way Death Trap, because. I have that. Oh, actual, yeah. I have that actual comic book physically. Uh, it is by far the oldest comic book that I have. Um, not going to retire if I ever try to sell it. But I mean, that's just it, it. That one stands out to me because it's like, oh, my gosh, I've got a very old Batman comic that's actually still in pretty good shape. And so and I think that the, the cover itself is really like it's really fun. <laughs> Well, it's a great cover. I mean, and it, and it sort of is indicative of the, the magic of uh, Carmine Infantino as a cover mm-hmm. artist. Uh, he really, um, he was probably producing the most Marvel-like DC covers. And what I mean by that is um, now some of the DC, the Marvel covers of the 60s could be kind of copy heavy and blurb heavy and such, but other times they really conveyed a lot of action. And uh, whereas DC's comics often, their covers were often more gimmick related. Like, you know, how can Superman get out of this? You know, uh, you know, uh, with, uh, yeah, how can Superman and Clark Kent be in the same, uh, you know, shot yeah, and uh, that kind of thing. But what Carmine did when he uh, was designing, you know, flash covers and then the, the Batman covers, like the one that you were suggesting, he really just added a lot of energy to them, and and at times a sense of drama, and uh, and and different, you know, yeah, tilting the angle, which was also something that you know with the the Batman TV show uh, did too, um, and, and and just created a lot of movement uh, on a static image that uh, he was just you know, fabulous with that, and also. Uh, he was good at doing gimmick covers as well that gets you to wonder you know well how will batman get out of that trap or uh, that, that kind of thing so he was just a you know a fabulous fabulous artist and and loved telling stories so that was fun uh, another thing that I, I i interviewed his uh his inker joe giella who mm-hmm. we're still fortunate to have joe with us today um he's, he's in his 90s but um i wrote an essay about bob kane Oh. And that one, I, I, I traded very lightly with because mm-hmm. um, there, you know, Kane is probably one of two individuals that engenders uh, uh, a lot of an emotional reaction from from people. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people, you know, dislike Bob Kane uh, because, yes, he created Batman and had the sole credit for the longest time for generations while Bill Finger, who wrote most of the Batman stories that were credited to uh, uh, Kane and who embellished Batman by adding the things that you would think that would make him Batman. The, uh, the uh, you know, iconography of the bat, the, uh, the scalloped bat wings of the, the cape, the, uh, the gauntlet or the bat wings of the glove. 
uh, all that, that kind of stuff. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, Commissioner Gordon, all these things that are trappings of a character that, that uh, were essentially added by Finger. But Finger just toiled in uh, anonymity and obscurity and sort of fell into alcoholism later. These are the fascinating things that I found out there. They're sad things oftentimes yeah. that you ne- have no clue about when you're a kid, you know, reading mm-hmm. that story. Nor do you really want to know that stuff, quite frankly, when you're a kid. Why, uh, why be burdened by that as a child? And why, why be yanked out of the, uh, the, the world, this suspension of disbelief by thinking, well, gee, this story, this, this classic Batman story was written by a poor guy who would later, you know, kind of wallow off into despair uh because he didn't get his his credit um and uh, and you know die a sad man uh but when you become an adult and you're still loving this material then you want to start to peel off the layers Mm -hmm. and you want to start to see you know okay well what was going on behind the scenes when they came up with that story and that's sort of the philosophy that we uh, apply uh you know that i apply that uh, the writers who do stuff for me uh, back issue applies that Michael Cronenberg applied to the um, Bronze Age Batman stuff. You want to figure out what was in the heads of the people who were producing these stories. And, uh, and that's why it's so cool to be able to talk to them. Mm-hmm. And, and the, generally these folks are just you know, happy to, to, to share their stories. Yeah. Uh, back during their day, like when, you know, when Carmine and Tino was really in his prime, just to use him again. Um, the, the comics conventions were kind of in their infancy, so these guys didn't get the props. They didn't get the, and you know, there's an immediate response and reaction. But uh, uh, in the in the past, the the Nick Cartys, the Kurt Swans of the past, were guys who were just drawing from their studio or their home studio and, and did not get that feedback. And so they didn't know if people liked what they did as long as they just kept getting a call from their editor and getting another script or another cover to draw or whatever, you know, that's, that's, that's the feedback they got. They got their check. So, um, so later when this world that I live in now of comics history uh, evolved, uh, we were able to, you know, get to know some of these guys who have now passed, like Carmine, like Nick Cordy, now, you know, rest in peace, uh, George Perez, um, and, uh, and uh, Neil Adams. Uh, and, you, and oftentimes you get to know them pretty well over the years, and, uh, which was really one of the cool perks of the job. Uh, you know, how, who would have thought that, um, you know, Dick Giordano uh, would become a mentor of mine and, and a friend to me? Uh, when I was a kid reading a comic book that he drew or inked, you know, I never would have thought, or reading his editorials as the editorial director of DC Comics in the 80s, his Meanwhile Comics, uh, his, his, his column, excuse me. I never would have known that just a handful of years later that I'd be, you know, Dick's assistant in his office, that kind of stuff. Oh, wow. Um, and, but then all these years later, you know, have a friendship with him and, and really be moved uh you know personally when he passed and when now when neil passed and all this other stuff um it's, so it's, it's 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 an honor you know and privilege to, to develop relationships with these guys but to, yeah. as a journalist and as a fan to be able to talk these stories you know through with them and and to, to pick their brains and find out what uh 
what that was going on with them. But by the time I wrote about Bob Kane, Kane had passed, so I didn't have the the luxury of uh, interviewing him. So I just read a whole lot about him, and including some stuff that he wrote in his own autobiography. And he was probably second only to Stan Lee as uh, a self promoter. But and some people have been very unkind about his uh, level of art artistry and talent. Um, I kind of feel that in a way, and this is my opinion, but I wrote it from this perspective that he kind of created this persona for himself and he was trapped by it. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to forgive him for, or con- well, forgive, that's, that's a harsh term, not to condone his sole proprietorship, so to speak, of Batman for the longest time when, if you study the credits, there were so many other people from Dick Sprang to uh, uh, Sheldon Moldoff uh, to Jerry Robinson, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, who were drawing these stories all with that credit, you know, Bob Kane. Now, even when I was a kid, I started to notice and reading these old stories, I'd get these 80 page giants and then, then the hundred page super spectaculars. And I was reading these stories that predated me by a long time. And it said by Bob Kane, and then even as a kid, and then emerging as a, a teenager, I'm thinking, well, Bob Kane had a whole lot of different styles. You know, he, he drew he drew differently. And then then as I started to read introductions to books that came out about Batman in the '70s, then I discovered that Bob Kane was not drawing these stories. So I tried to treat him with some level of respect mm-hmm. uh, in the uh, essay I wrote about him. But by the same token, kind of you know showing that he, he really wasn't giving a fair shake to um, the people who worked under him. And uh, Joe Giella tells a story where Kane was sketching live on a TV show in the Quote, 60s. unquote. Batman <laughs> and Batman characters. Yeah, yeah, you got that, the, the uh, quote, unquote, sketching live. Uh, but what Giella had actually done was very faintly penciled Batman characters that you could not see on the TV camera, but Kane was there on the camera, then drawing again, in quotes, those characters live. So there was a guy behind this that uh, I think was sort of kind of lost behind a, a, a mask that he had created for himself in a way too. Uh, would he share credit for him? Yeah, probably. But uh, that's that was a long time ago, and who knows what would have maintained creatorship of Batman. But uh, yeah, uh, he wouldn't have taken credit for a lot of stuff that he presumably did not do. After the Batcave Companion was published, so I got a letter from a guy who was really uh, you know defensive um, for Bob Kane, and it was kind of a threatening letter in a way. You know, I, I will be watching everything you do from now on. So. Hopefully you're watching me today. Uh, you know, I uh, it's, it's, it's a matter of interpretation as to whether somebody's fair. I always try to be fair. Uh, with everything I publish as an editor and as a writer, I, I, I try to be fair. Uh, uh, but again, sometimes... Um, that's a matter of uh, you know the eye of the beholder as to whether or not I've succeeded. I, I the Joe Giella interview that stuck out, which it's too bad that that stuck out the most to me. But um, also, like it, it is and what myself. it is. 
because that the fact of the tracing aspect, just because how yeah, yeah, unfair okay. that seems, you know, from every angle. And I think when I first read this, when I when I got it back in 2009, I saw that and I was like, no way. And rereading it now and everything, too, it still has that same effect of. Uh, and that's what I wanted to ask you about a little bit, too, because uh, thou shall not speak ill of the dead. But, you know, Bob Kane, it's he's getting more and more of a bad rap, I think. Uh, the past, you know, decade or so is more, I don't know, he's discussed a lot. And yeah, um, the unfairness towards Bill Finger, Bob Kane seems to be the one who receives the finger and all the blame as if, you know, uh, he as if he was this villain against Bill Finger and stuff. But then you hear a story like that. And it's like, man, how did how did that pass? How did that get that far where he was able to do um where he was able to do that trace on TV and uh, Sheldon Moldock too, is being like a ghost, <laughs> well, a ghost artist for him as well, I mean, which you include like, in the book. There, yeah. And there's something that I include in the book. It's a sidebar that we, uh, that Will Murray, uh, you know, wonderful novelist and historian recently wrote about, <clears throat> excuse me, in the uh, other tomorrow's magazine, I edit a retro fan. It was a courageous cat and minute mouse. Mm -hmm. You know these characters, other than maybe the cyborg that's in the. Early I do not. Band. Uh, essentially, in the early '60s, Bob Kane, you know, creator of Batman, mm -hmm. created a new cartoon series called Courageous Cat and Minute Mouse. So it's essentially Batman and Robin as cartoon characters, but as a you know a cat and a mouse. And I mean, it, they literally are in a cave, and they've got a, like a doom, 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 you know, <laughs> a, a musical score, and there's a, a, a signal in the sky, and you know, there uh, a Bill and the Frog, all this this stuff going on, and uh, it's, but Sheldon Moldoff once again was working uncredited on that show. So from Shelley's perspective. Um, you know, he was getting a, a, a check. He looked back at it years later when he started to get interviewed more about it. And sure, he would have liked to have gotten credit. But, but here's the thing that defines the thinking of the day. And um, in a perfect world, everybody would have received ample credit and sort of work for higher contracts. And, uh, you know, this even holds true for Jack Kirby at Marvel, the stuff he was doing. Um, people signed contracts and a company. And in a manner of speaking, Bob King was kind of sort of a command stories uh, that were, you know, for DC Comics. But having ghost artists and writers do it for him. Um, should everybody have gotten a credit back then? Of course they should. Perspective that's wholly different from ours today. Or the challenge, I should let me rephrase that. The challenge of understanding history is it's easier to understand when you can put yourself in the shoes of or in the mindset of the people yeah. back then, rather than how we think of it today. Yeah, And so back then, it was almost all work for hire. Nobody cared about their credit or proprietary real relationship to the material or, or nobody even could imagine that, you know, 60, 70 years from now, they'll be, you know, writing a 
all fat came to companions about my work or whatever, you know, it's just, they were just doing their work. And so if you can kind of imagine that perspective, these guys were doing their work. It was really in the 60s where the fan aspect started to evolve, where you started to have a few conventions, where you started to have someone other than small kids, the 8 to 12-year-old boy, reading comics, where, you know, you basically had school teachers and college professors who had been reading comics uh, and were still reading comics. And, and it was like the college crowd of the early 60s that called on to Marvel and thought this was really cool and trendy and helped the stuff catch on. And so it was then that the creators started to think about the material maybe in a bit of a different perspective. And then by the time, you know, Batman and Superman were on TV and then Spider-Man and the FF come up and cartoons and then, you know, Hanna-Barbera creating Space Ghost and all this stuff that starts to explode. Then you get a Superman, uh, you know, a move, excuse me, um, uh, the Broadway musical is the bird is the plane of Superman. And then merchandising starts with the Batman TV show. I mean, there have been merchandising before and a lot of Superman stuff, especially in the 50s when that TV show was on. But by the time the late 60s roll around and then the 70s, it becomes a cash cow. Mm -hmm. That's when the creators who had been at it for a while started to realize, man, I wish I had had my piece of the pie. And unfortunately, they were kind of stuck with these work for hire contracts and such that uh, did not give them that piece of the pie. In some cases, there have been, you know, situations where publishers, either by their own volition or maybe by some shaming, <laughs> have uh, gone back in and, you know, cut deals with people, like classically to sidestep Batman for a minute. But it's important because Neil Adams was involved. Um, you know, Neil Adams and Jerry Robinson, uh, the you know, Golden Age Batman artist, mm -hmm. um, basically kind of led DC Comics and Warner Brothers into cutting a, a deal for Jerry Siegel <clears throat> and Joe Schuster, the Superman creators in the late 70s, because Superman was about to become a big motion picture. And these guys were not really doing well, especially Schuster, who was kind of like legally blind living in a in a hubble. But, uh, and so it took a long time for something similar to happen for Bill Finger. So it's only been in the, I mean, how many years ago was that that Finger finally got his creds? Uh, 2013, 2014? Yeah, I mean, it, it hasn't even been 10 years as yeah. our conversation today. So, and it's like, a, and it's not a, a shared credit, it's a with. It's yeah. like, you know, the old comics used to say, you know, Batman with Robin, <laughs> the mm -hmm. boy wonder, and the way it's Batman created by Bob Kane with Bill Finger. Yeah. And, but nonetheless, Finger is there. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you kind of wish the Finger, uh, that would have happened while he was alive to have appreciated it. I kind of like to think in his own special corner of fandom heaven that he's able to look down and say, well, you know, I'm, I'm glad that they finally did it that way. But yeah. Uh, yeah, it just ends up being sad though when you really you know put your mind into the perspective of Finger or the other guys who have, you know almost all these guys are gone now, um, mm -hmm. uh, but just kind of did it and then later really became aware of, gee man I probably should have 
made a better deal for myself. So yeah, finger finally got his due. And, uh, you know, and gosh, uh, by evidence by the guy's surname, you know, I mean, you can insert your own you know, pun that, uh, you know, King gave him the finger. Uh, or is there some other thing that people have been using as kind of, you know, you know, sorry jokes about the situation for years. But, uh, yeah, he just uh, was doing what he was paid to do back then. Same thing with Moldoff. And um, here we are yeah, to, to reveal those stories later for uh, people coming along. And so people who are, you know, younger than you <laughs> who discover these stories now, when they're approaching it from a contemporary perspective where, you know, everybody gets their credits. I mean, come on. The, you, when you see a Marvel Studio movie, you know, for that two and a half hours, well, 20 minutes of it is sitting through the credits, not just to get the, the teasers, but how many people are credited as a, I mean, look yeah. at all the names and they might roll by fast and they might be at a very tiny point size that uh, you have to ultimately, you know, on, when you have it at home, you know, uh, freeze frame it to see it, but uh, they're getting their credit. Whereas back in the day, it was a buy Bob King scenario. Mm -hmm. So when somebody from this perspective of today looks at that stuff back there, it seems to be horribly criminal. It was kind of standard operating procedure yeah. back then. Again, that's just a statement of fact, not necessarily a means of condoning it. Certainly not a way to condone it. Sure. But but I do kind of understand where they were coming from back then because that's just the way they did it. Yeah. Uh, lastly, uh, you write a you devote a, a chapter to as is very understandable on the Batman TV series of the 60s, which there's nobody who does not know what that show is. <laughs> um, for better and yeah, for, that's true. I mean, for better and for worse, uh, I guess, could you describe its impact on the comic book, on Batman comics? Well, yeah, I, I can. It, uh, it, it, um, it was the best thing that could have happened for comics it was the best of times and the worst of times in a way yeah it uh, for dc comics in particular it uh it boosted batman's sales colossally um batman was so hot for a while that uh he i mean justice league uh you know batman would dominate the covers uh in the Teen Titans, which was a relatively new comic at the time. Robin would dominate the covers. Um, the World's Finest, which had always been Superman and Batman together uh, for a period in the mid-60s, uh, you know, Batman was getting top billing. Um, so Batman was everywhere and uh, the, the, the comics were doing well. Um, the, the, the interesting thing about this is a lot of people who were older than me. And again, I was a grade school child back then, the perfect target audience for those campy TV colors and you know, theatrics and craziness. Um, they were really doing their best for television and moving. And then color was a new medium back then. Uh, I mean, literally, I mean, it's hard to believe that, uh, you know, in, in 1966 though, uh, when Batman was premiering, there were still a handful of TV shows that were still being produced in black and white. And so usually when a TV show would come on, there would be a teaser like, you know, Batman in color 
or something like that. You know, they literally, literally were promoting the fact that it was in color. And so Batman not only promoted it, it threw it in your face uh, with all those colorful sets. I mean, they really were just relishing them, that stuff. And so, but they were really kind of emulating what they were finding in comic books. The sound effects, there were sound effects in comic books, of course, they're, they're, they're still there, but uh, it's a silent medium but they recreate or create sound with sound effects. But of course, what the TV show was, they did was like, you know, bam, they threw it in your face with the graphic yeah. and then a bam <laughs> and a sound <laughs> effect and all this stuff going on and the music and the choreographed fights and all this stuff. And, uh, and so people became very, the people who were older than me reading comic books, most of them kind of universally said, Boy, this Batman thing is making fun of comics. It's like it's setting us back. When from the TV show's perspective, they were kind of doing what the comics were doing. So I don't have, I don't feel like I need to defend it, though. I mean, it no. is a product of its time. Uh, and, you know, and the comic books then started to become even more like the TV show. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, Chief O'Hara, who really didn't exist, uh, uh, became uh, uh, in the comics kind of did become a character there and Harriet they uh, Alfred had been killed uh, in the um, comic books they they wanted to uh, you know make some changes into Batman again going back to the original story which created what they called the new look Batman they kill Alfred well then Alfred is in the TV show so they have to resurrect Alfred real fast but uh, they also had created Aunt Harriet because of gay stereotypes. Um, it, uh, you know, today we have transgender and all types of characters uh, on, and, and, you know, on TV as superheroes as well as in the comics. That wasn't the case in 1966. They wanted to uh, avoid any gay stereotypes from, you know, two wealthy men living in a... Um, mansion together because quite frankly this is in that book seduction of the innocent of the 50s they uh I, i'm paraphrasing but i might actually be nailing the quote uh dr wertham or vertum i'm not sure actually how it's pronounced i've heard both ways um who wrote that book basically called uh, bruce wayne and dick grayson's uh lifestyle a uh idyllic homosexual fantasy or something uh, mm. like that uh, yeah. but um so they really wanted to avoid that in 1966. And so Aunt Harriet was introduced uh, to have a woman in, in, in the mix there. So all of these, you know, products of then current thinking, we look at now as I say, wow, but uh, that's the way it was back then. So uh, this stuff kind of permeated it in, in, into the uh, DC comics. They, they ended up creating an Aunt Harriet, which, uh, was Dick Grayson's uh, aunt, which was around very briefly. And now uh, Batgirl made it uh, to the, the comics, uh, replacing the previous Batgirl that had been there and kind of forgotten about. And uh, the Batmobile became more of a hot rod. And uh, the villains were back in flamboyant. But then by the time the show ran its course, uh, they started to backpedal on that. And, and the villains weren't seen as often. And Robin goes off to college. Dick Grayson goes to college. And that's when the darkening of Batman began. And that's sort of where I closed my section of the Batcave Companion.
it was a logical line of demarcation yeah. uh, at the end of the 60s. You know, and that's li literally when they're, you know, transforming Batman back to his gothic roots. And that's where Michael Cronenberg picked up with the second part of uh, the Batcave Companion when Batman was uh, being revamped. And so it's, it's, a, it's a clean marriage of the two sections of uh, Batman's history, this, uh, mm -hmm. you know, later Silver Age history, um, which really could arguably be also, also be called the uh, Camp Era, and mm -hmm. then the Bronze Age, which could be called the Creature of the Night Era, uh, because that's when Batman transformed. You know, he basically was salvaged from the junk pile, you know, I don't know if DC ever really would have canceled Batman in 1963, despite the threat. Uh, yeah. They might have canceled Batman and kept Detective Comics around. It was their flagship title. DC came from Detective Comics. Uh, you know, they, 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 they needed to do something to get the character shot in the arm. And then the new look succeeded and sales were on the increase. And then the Batman TV show came along and then it just exploded. But again, like any fad, Batmania, you know, it just yeah. starts to, the, the, the bubble burst and then the fizzes and goes away. And then they, the sales start to shrink and then they have to figure out what do we do next? And what do we do next is Neil Adams and those other guys coming along, Denny O'Neill and, and, and Neil and Adams, that's Batman what we dark. do. <laughs> yep, there you go. <laughs> uh, you included here, at the end of the 66 uh, chapter, an index of the comics adapted to the series off the top of your yeah. head. Do you, do you have a favorite episode that instantly stands out that was inspired by one of the comics? Uh, actually, no, I don't. I don't. I okay. think that they, uh, because none of them were really uh, a literal uh, sure. translation. They were kind of borrowed from, mm -hmm. uh, from this or from that. So um and, and they were, were changed. Uh, yeah, sometimes the villain wasn't even the same villain at the end of the, the story. So, um, no, it wasn't like an adaptation that I could say, like uh, oh, like that Rocketeer movie of 19, whatever. What was it? What, what year did that come out? 84? 96, I don't know. You remember? Did you ever see that? The Rocketeer? Uh, no, when I was a kid. The uh, Rocketeer, maybe... yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, it, I have it, Google. It other... <laughs> Okay, yeah, you can find that out, uh, yeah, real quick. But uh, that was other than Betty Page being replaced uh, in character name. It was pretty much like a Dave Stevens comic book come to life. That was an adaptation. Uh, the Batman TV show um, borrowed from a handful of comics, so uh, so I don't necessarily have a favorite. I, I would say that my favorite episode uh, still have to be the the uh, the pilot, the yes. first. Two. And there were two partners, you know, it was the Riddler episode, which had Jill St. John uh, as the Riddler's girlfriend, and she impersonates uh, Robin. They, they kidnap yeah. Robin. Uh, this is the famous Batusi episode where Batman goes into the discotheque and, and they slip in the Mickey and his... Uh, drinking uh, anything other than a healthy orange juice uh, or was it a glass of milk i don't recall i need to go back and rewatch that but nonetheless <laughs> he, he gets a little woozy and and he's out there and with wanton abandon you know bat with uh you know with jill st john and it's uh 
it's an iconic thing. Everybody's got probably a gif of Batman, yeah. you know, like, you know, shaking a mean cape. And it uh, it was just, it was the times. And is, is it the same Batman that uh, the Christian Bale played or whatever, you know, with the gruff, gruff voice or Robert Pattinson or Ben Affleck in between or Michael Keaton coming back again, another shot at it? You know, uh, no, but it was uh, of this era. And uh, I, I loved it as a kid. The classic line where um, Jill St. John falls to her death and the atomic stock file, which of course the Batcave has there, you know, and, and Batman just looks over and says, you know, what a way to go, go. Uh, and, you know, Adam West delivers it with this deadpan delivery where you, you know backstage, all these guys are like, they're really just trying to hold it from bursting yeah. out laughing. <laughs> but, but his deadpan, his serious delivery was all that makes that show so classic because it was, you know, and that's when I look at it today, I, I find that, you know, he's, he's really playing Batman, uh, the, the only straight guy in a world of lunatics. And, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but, if, you know, he's sort of the law. I just, I just love that, that two-part episode. Uh, Lorenzo Simple Jr.'s script nailed it. Just hilarious. Uh, it was just so new. My favorite villain, though, of the series had to be, it was a tie between Cesar Romero's Joker, who, when, as a kid, I never realized that he actually had his Latin lover mustache just hidden behind the white makeup. Never saw it as a child. Uh, never saw the mustache. Although now I look at it and those prickly hairs are right there through the, yeah. the makeup, visible as it can be, especially in high def today. Uh, remaster high def, but also King Cut. I just love the King Cut villain, which they later brought into some comics, but that was mm-hmm. created for the show. And what a classic character. Uh, and uh, just a lot of fun. Just a lot of fun. Absolutely. And the Batmobile, coolest Hollywood car ever. I still think that out of everything I've seen before and since, nothing can top that car. It's utterly the coolest car. Favorite. Awesome. Uh, I want to uh-huh. respect your time. And I know we could talk about this a uh-huh. lot longer, but I, I have some uh, quick questions for you. Rapid sure. fire. Uh-huh. Elaborate as little or as much as you want to for each one. So okay. um, I'm going to ask some of these to Michael as well. But what do you think had more of an impact? Detectives, Detective Comics 327 or Batman 217? Well, um at the time, um, probably Detective Comics 327. All right. Because it was really something very new. Okay. At its time, yeah. All right. Uh, how about another more impact, um, not just singular uh, issue, but do you think the new look or the big change, which is what you guys named them in the Batcave Companion, the two sections? Well, you know, I, I have to say they tie. Um, All right. I, I can't choose between the two because they were equally important during their specific times. No wrong answer. Personal preference, Batwoman or Batgirl? Oh, uh, Batgirl. Batgirl. Okay. Yeah. I'm a big, I'm a big fan, Barbara yeah. Gordon. Um, let's see. Yellow Oval or no yellow? And you got to realize, too, that I was a... Uh, oh, no. Um, well... <laughs> yellow oval, yellow again, oval that's okay. just childhood 
childhood sure. uh, thing, you know. Yeah, that was my Batman. And speaking of childhood thing, that the, going back to Batgirl, Ivan uh, Craig as Batgirl, that was one of the, and also Julie Newmar as Catwoman. Childhood sexual awakenings, you know. <laughs> it's uh, essentially, I mean, I, I I was supposed to be doing my third grade homework, but uh, I was, you know, just going gaga over those pretty ladies and those long legs and all the kicks and uh and the purring and all that stuff you know it's just what <laughs> uh sex appeal was inherent with the characters and it's one thing that the dads and young sons were enjoying and then and plus their daughters uh, were empowered by this character so a, a family-friendly show that batman was yeah uh and then lastly uh for when it comes to the cowl do you like long ears or short ears I like the long ears. Long ears. Perfect. I do. I do. Yeah, even though you would probably expect me to say short ears because that goes back to my childhood. No, the long ears, it, it casts a better shadow. And the shadow is, uh, I think, part of uh, Batman's appeal as the creature of the night. Yeah. Very cool. Every episode, I like to ask a poll question relating to the topic at hand. So for the this poll question, I ask, in the 1960s, which villain was more entertaining in Batman comics? The Joker, the Riddler, or the Penguin? If you were to answer that yourself, which Batman villain do you think was the most entertaining in comics? In comics? Um, probably the Penguin. The Penguin. Okay, very yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah. And that's not my personal preference, but I think that as I'm, I'm actually thinking of, about the stories themselves mm-hmm. that existed back then. Yeah. Very yeah. cool. Uh, I'm, I would maybe have to go with the Riddler. Joker's my favorite villain, but the, the Riddler is not far behind him. And I think some of those comics from that time period with the Riddler were a lot of fun for me to revisit and stuff. So I like the Riddler too. You know, I just wanted to add that, uh, you know, the bad thing about the 60s is there's so few Riddler stories of the 60s. Mm-hmm. That uh, you know he was kind of a he was a yeah he was a a forties construct that uh, didn't appear that often you know it wasn't until the the sixties that uh, with the Batman TV show that he really started to be used with uh, a lot of regularity but uh, you know prior to that he had a period of, of dormancy for for a while whereas the Joker and the Penguin kept uh, going on during those phases. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Uh, this has been a lot of fun talking to you (laughs) about the book. Uh, I appreciate you you. taking the time to, to come aboard. Is, um, is there anything that you'd like to plug, direct people where to go, anything at all? Well, uh, the Batcave companion is still available. There aren't a whole lot of copies left now. So, um, uh, tomorrow's, and that would be uh, T-W-O-M-O-R-R-O-W-S dot com uh, is where you can order the book. And uh, as a personal plug, in addition to uh, uh, Back Issue Magazine and Retrofan, which I, I do for tomorrow's, I have a new book uh, that's coming out in August called The Team Up Companion. It's the first companion book I've done since The Batcave Companion. And it looks at uh, the great team-up comics uh, from both Marvel and DC from the uh, 60s and 70s, starting with the Brave and the Bold. So it goes through 
uh, that and you know, Marvel team up and all this stuff in between, including the new Scooby-Doo movies. Do you know what that is? The you ever heard of that? The new, the new Scooby-Doo, Scooby-Doo movies. movies? Um, yeah, it's the second hmm. new Scooby-Doo show, which was kind of a, a precursor to uh, Scooby-Doo team up. And it, literally every episode, okay. Scooby and the gang would team up with Sonny and Cher or the Harlem Globetrotters. Oh, yeah. Okay. Or Don Knotts, all these 70s uh, <laughs> celebrities. And then the Three Stooges, weird, weird stuff. But it was a team-up concert, so I threw in a chapter on it, and uh, yeah, I had to. So <laughs> that was a lot of fun. That's great. But thank you for having me today. It's been a blast talking about this book and talking Batman with you. Yeah, it, it sure has. So there you go. He directed you where to go in case you don't have the Batcave companion yet. Um, it's a wealth of knowledge on the history of this character um, in this time period. Two huge moments in history for him as michael does the batuzi uh to me right now on screen so um (laughs) as for the batman book club you can follow on twitter and instagram at the batman bc for latest episode drops like with the next one with michael cronenberg so pay attention to that you can subscribe to the youtube channel on youtube the batman book club if you have questions or comments or anything at all you want to write in about you can email at the batman bc at gmail.com if you want to support the show, there's a variety of ways you can do that. Patreon.com slash the Batman BC. Go to T Public and type TBBC and you can get some merchandise to support the show. Uh, a shout out to the sponsors Manscaped. Uh, go to manscaped.com, type the code BATBOOK and you can get 20% off and free shipping. But if you want to support the show and you don't want to spend any money at all, that's 100% A-OK. Best thing you can do is rate and review the show on whatever pod course podcast platform that you use uh, just uh, go to the rate and review page rate and review it it helps spread the word and as we all know the word is panic so for michael Ewery, i am ryan lauer and until next time read more batman comics <laughs> <laughs>